Hi everyone, welcome back to Dirty Chai Chats, a podcast all about sexual health, love, and relationships at Tufts. I'm Henry, a sex health rep, and today we're going to be opening up our history books. The HIV and AIDS crisis began just about 40 years ago, and yet it has a huge impact on the field of sex health at large. So today I'm going to be getting down into the nitty gritty, from the basics of PrEP and PEP to the politics of HIV and what it did for present sexual health stigma. For all of you visual learners, we've also published a graphic guide to HIV prevention techniques on our Instagram. Go check it out at Tufts SHR. Now let's get into it. So though I'm far from a scientist, I think it will be helpful to get a feel for what HIV and AIDS are so that we can better understand the history of the virus. HIV, or human immunodeficiency virus, is a virus that attacks the body's immune system. When we think about HIV transmission, I think most of us envision penetrative vaginal or anal sex. Though those are some of the most common methods, HIV can also be transmitted by sharing needles or other drug equipment. In rare cases, HIV can also be spread from a mother to her baby, or from everyday workplace injuries that incur some loss of fluids. But because sexual spread is the most common form of HIV transmission, many consider HIV to be an issue of sexual health. AIDS, or Acquired Immunodeficiency Syndrome, is the most severe stage of HIV. Those suffering from AIDS have badly damaged immune systems, meaning that they will frequently experience worse and worse bodily reactions to illnesses. These illnesses are called opportunistic infections and are often used to differentiate HIV from AIDS. In the United States, most people living with HIV do not develop AIDS, as we have developed medicine to prevent the progression of the virus. Now that we know what HIV and AIDS look like, let's talk about the public health response in America. The first case of HIV was reported to the CDC in 1980 by Ken Horn, a gay man living in San Francisco. In 1982, the New York Times would publish an article titled New Homosexual Disorder Worries Health Officials and would use the term GRID, or Gay-Related Immune Deficiency. For the next several years, more and more people, predominantly queer men, but also so many more, would die from AIDS. Actor Rock Hudson would put a public spotlight on the disease, dying from AIDS in 1985. Yet the government still refused to act. Led by then-President Ronald Reagan, the government proceeded to essentially turn a blind eye, allowing its citizens to die. More and more branded AIDS as the gay man's disease, with thousands of Reaganites pointing to AIDS as a sign of God's wrath against queerness. By 1987, the utter inadequacy of the government response led to mass protests with the founding of ACT UP, a group that hosted die-ins to prompt government officials to act. It was not until 1989 that there was federal action about AIDS, and not until 1990, once Reagan had left office, that any significant federal funds were designated to the care and treatment of those suffering with AIDS. Just within the 1980s, over 100,000 people died from AIDS, and that's just what was reported to the CDC, with stigma around AIDS being the gay man's disease, and with riots literally burning the houses of children who suffered from AIDS to the ground, Many left their status undisclosed. We lost thousands and thousands of people, and the disease ravaged the queer community. So we can see why studying AIDS would be so important to understanding modern queer sexual health. 
On a basic level, there is still so much stigma surrounding queer sex health. Look to the recent outbreak of monkeypox, which isn't even sexually transmitted. Once anything affects queer people more deeply, it is assumed to be sexually transmitted, and homophobic talking heads appear to speak on the sins of queer people. It's also important to consider discretion when we talk about queer sex health. It was only 40 years ago that queer people were getting banned from public spaces and facing acts of violence because of their perceived sexual health. As much as we want to be sexually liberated and open, and we deserve to be, we need to remember that different people experience public sexual health in different ways. Some communities are at more risk for violence when speaking openly about their sexual health, and so we should all try to be conscious of what we speak about and for whom we speak for. But let's pull back a second. Before we talk about those big social issues that the AIDS epidemic brought to light, let's talk about the tangible and the practical. This post-Reagan period of the 90s and early 2000s brought massive scientific innovation in HIV treatment, research that is still going on in labs across the country. By now, the presence of AIDS is incredibly uncommon in the United States because our medicine has gotten so good at stopping the progression of HIV to that stage. Thousands of people across the country live freely and openly with HIV, something that, after seeing what occurred in the 80s, is a bit of a medical miracle. Probably the two most important advances in post-Reagan HIV and AIDS research are PEP and PrEP. PEP, or post-exposure prophylaxis, is a treatment plan for those accidentally exposed to HIV. You must begin administering PEP within 72 hours of exposure, and it normally involves about 28 days of regular pills. Still, if regimented properly, PEP allows us to stop the spread of HIV right after exposure. PrEP, or pre-exposure prophylaxis, provides a way to protect yourself from the spread of HIV. A pill taken once a day or in a 2-1-1 plan, which is two pills before sex, one 24 hours afterwards, and one 48 hours afterwards, is 99% effective at preventing the spread of HIV. For this reason, PrEP is an incredibly empowering drug, both for those protecting themselves and for those who are HIV positive. It's certainly anxiety calming to know that you're protecting yourself from HIV for those who are taking PrEP as a preventative measure. And for those who are living with HIV, having partners who take PrEP allows them to feel more free and more open in their sexual lives. That is the social impact of sexual health research. Though PrEP is this tiny little pill, it has the power to make people feel more human. So there are two types of PrEP, which function in almost exactly the same way. There is Truvada and there is Descovy, both of which are over 99% effective at stopping the spread of HIV, and both of which are meant to be taken with the same frequency. Side effects are fairly similar, though Descovy might be slightly better for those with pre-existing bone or kidney problems. The main difference, though, is that Truvada has a generic alternative available. Both Truvada and Descovy come from the same pharmaceutical manufacturer, being Gilead Science. And coincidentally enough, Gilead filed their medical patent for Descovy almost exactly when their patent for Truvada expired. Then, with a flurry of ads pushing Descovy towards queer people, it's hard not to look at the rollout of Truvada and Descovy as a sort of malpractice and a preying upon those in need. A lot is still unknown, so we can't make any grand claims here, 
But on the surface level, it looks like Gilead staggered the availability of these drugs to maximize their profit. Even 40 years later, after the tragedies of the Reagan administration are long behind us, there is still some higher-level medical exploitation that is harming queer sex health. On a social level, most queer people have incorporated the language of HIV into their everyday lives. Communicating about testing is incredibly common among queer relationships, and much more common than it is among straight relationships. You'll see terms like DDF thrown around on hookup apps like Grindr, and many feel entitled to ask if if others are on prep before hooking up. This social integration of HIV prevention language into queer life puts on full display just how prominent the post-AIDS culture is in queer sex health. AIDS fundamentally altered how queer people meet, hook up, and find relationships. I should also mention that HIV-AIDS impacts communities differently. The face of HIV-AIDS back in the 80s was white gay men, which led to some horrible community damage, but also meant that they were the first to be helped and treated. Black and brown queer people, as well as trans and non-binary folks, were so frequently left by the wayside. Now, even as AIDS has almost been entirely suppressed within America, the most common cases are found within black and brown trans people because they are so frequently provided with inadequate health care. Much of this discussion throughout this podcast episode has been from a retrospective lens, looking back, which is helpful to discuss what we've learned. But for black and brown trans people, this issue is still very much alive. When we talk about the cross-section of inadequate healthcare and poor sexual health, this is exactly what we mean. The problem is not with the research, the problem is not with the lab studies. The problem is with the system. So now we've made it to the end, or at least the end of this finite podcast episode, because HIV and AIDS are ever-present and an issue that impacts almost everything within sexual health. The AIDS crisis fundamentally impacts how queer people look at sex, look at relationships, and even look at their social lives. That memory will live on forever. So that's it for me. Thank you for tuning in, and as always, stay safe and stay sexy.